What? You know, for the sake of the weaker brother, uh, this morning, uh, you're going to be blessed uh, by the message this morning, and, and I just wanted to introduce our speaker this morning, the Right Reverend Dr. Gary Phillips. Thank you, my son. So, by now you're wondering if Gary and Lewis are totally crazy and gone off the deep end. Um, last year at the youth auction, Nick DeCosimo paid good money for uh, Gary to wear his academic robe and for Lewis to wear a coat and tie on a Sunday morning. Uh, Nick really uh, didn't care about, about this, uh, but for this whole year I've been uh, teased, asked, uh, being asked, when are you going to man up? And uh, so, uh, now, a couple, a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, uh, I didn't say how long. And, uh, and secondly, I'm actually not even the wrong reverend. Uh, I'm, I'm not ordained. I'm not a reverend. So, all of you whose weddings I've done, who think, <laughs> who think you're married. <laughs> uh, actually, we're, uh, we're, we're good by the state of Tennessee. We're, it's, all, it's all good. So... Does, does it matter? Does it matter what we wear on a Sunday morning? Did you know that in 16th century England, there was a huge debate over what the pastor would wear? It was called the Vestrian Controversy. It's a real thing. And it's not, it, it, was, it was about whether or not ministers in Protestant church should wear vestments. Uh, and that was not just a robe, uh, it was more exotic, clerical garb, I've, I've written them down, a surplice, alb, cope, and chaucible. I had to look them all up, I'd never heard those words before. There are actually history books written about this debate, and one of the texts that was most often cited in the debate back and forth was Romans 14 and 15, of all things. And the debate actually led to persecutions and imprisonment. And uh, apparently, uh, sometimes little things can bring out the big theological guns. For the Puritans, uh, who mostly became Presbyterians, vestments were symbolic of the continuing influence of Roman Catholicism. And so they were against them. Uh, I wear a coat and tie because it's just... My view of professionalism, yeah, you're get, yeah, okay, <laughs> of, 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 because when I'm standing here before you saying, thus saith the Lord, I, I want to look um, somewhat the way I think of myself. I'm really digging it in here, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but, but here, actually, uh, and, and I'm not going to change in that, but 
according to our Protestant forebears, I'm the one that's on the wrong side of history. According to our Protestant forebears, because the Puritans would insist that since there is no priesthood, we're all priests in Christ, there's no clergy laity division, the pastor should wear nothing that would distinguish him from the laity. So, although the Puritans would probably have all of you wearing suits. So, today I want to do two things. Uh, first, I want to add my amen to what Lewis has taught as I review this segment with some final thoughts of my own. And second, I want to explore an important principle statement that's found in chapter 15, verse 4. Uh, and, and as we leave here today, I want you to understand what hope means. And, and to have a, a grasp on where it's found and how it's nurtured. So that's what I hope to accomplish today in our study. Paul has been focusing on our unity in Christ, despite the fact that we sometimes disagree. And I appreciate that in the Vestrian controversy in England, John Calvin actually wrote one of his English counterparts and basically told him, my translation, basically told him, my brother, this is not worth the debate. Not every issue is of equal importance to our sanctification. We've been studying Romans 14 and 15 uh, about how Christians are to disagree well. We've been looking at weaker brother, stronger brother issues. Some people call these gray areas. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, that works. But the problem is that neither side thinks it's gray. To one side, it's white. The other side, it's black. And the issues are multi-layered. You could have two strong believers who may choose different freedoms because they're maybe because of their circumstances or because of uh, in circumstances in which they live, which are different from another person, or maybe because of their backgrounds. Um, but here's, where, here's what Paul is not talking about. He is not, talking about, he is not addressing those things that Scripture is clear about, like idolatry, stealing, gossip, adultery, all those things are givens. He's not talking about those. Those are not negotiable areas. But in the gray areas, we need balance because a case can always be made for, uh, for not enjoying your liberty in Christ because someone somewhere will always take offense whether you give it or not. Now, on the other hand, the point of liberty is liberty. We are free in Christ to enjoy things. And the weaker brother is not to stay weak, but is to grow and enjoy their liberty in Christ. That's why I said we need balance. Okay, so from Lewis's teaching up to this point, I'd, I'd like to suggest a triage of disputed issues. And Lewis has mentioned things like this. First of all, some things are worth dying for. Second, some things are worth debating. And third, some things are worth discussing over coffee. The primary issues are worth dying for. These are essential to our faith. 
like our doctrinal statement, the things that we just recited in the Apostles and uh, today in the Nicene Creed. Those are our big ticket items. But secondary issues, those are things that are worth energetic debate. Issues important to our faith, but not essential to salvation. I mean, for example, to us, it's important for us to, to um, uh, be biblical in having elder leadership in the church. Uh, in, uh, it's important to have believer's baptism and not infant baptism. Uh, some people may dispute the nature of the Lord's Supper. Those are, are things worth energetic debate, but not worth dividing over. And third, tertiary issues are worth a discussion over coffee. These are issues that can be treated as matters of conscience, but with sensitivity towards believers who disagree, like Bible translations, or the frequency of the Lord's Supper, or your people have different views about end times, eschatology, or wearing ties in church, or homeschool versus public school versus private school versus Christian school. Or social issues like dancing or drinking or whether or not, and I think this is an important one, whether or not decaf coffee is really coffee. <laughs> Some of you uh, might put into category three what others would put in category two and vice versa. To them, it's, it's essential, it's very important, but it, maybe to you it's not. Or maybe something's essential to you and to them it's not. How do you navigate your relationships with other Christians who disagree? Uh, I put in your notes a summary of observations from the past studies that Lewis has been leading us through. And just make these, make these points with a few illustrations uh, of my own because I, I, I feel that this, is, uh, this was so well done. Uh, first of all, Romans 14 and 15 is written from the standpoint of the strong. I, I feel that uh, the point that Lewis made there is just very, very important. Holiness is not compromised where holiness is not compromised, there is freedom. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, where Paul, had, I'm sorry, is written from the standpoint of the. I was reading. Have you ever gone to the wrong line and read something? Did I, did I just cause you to stumble? Okay, let's go back to the first point, not the second one. Written from the standpoint of the strong, yet Paul addresses everyone. Paul does indeed take sides with the stronger brother. But he tells the stronger brother to be free enough not to have to exercise his freedom when a weaker brother's sanctification is at risk. So, but the weak should take notice that Paul does not identify with them but with the strong. Here's the second point. Paul makes clear that where the gospel is not threatened, where holiness is not compromised, there is freedom. Jude 3 tells us we are to contend earnestly for the faith. But Jude wasn't talking about wearing ties or vestments. Contending for the faith doesn't mean being contentious about everything else that is secondary or tertiary. We are not bound by the conscience of the believer who is not tempted to do the thing himself. Let me repeat that, because that, I know we're getting, it can get a little thick here. We're not bound by the conscience of the believer who disagrees with the freedoms that we take, 
but is not tempted to do the thing himself. We're not bound by their conscience. Um, That person who has a different view of your freedoms, who says, you can't do it either, that person is more or is less like the weaker brother and more like the Pharisee. Um, this may be exegetical abuse, but the metaphor for not causing the weaker brother to stumble implies that the weaker brother is in motion, moving, growing towards maturity, not sitting on the sidelines taking pot shots at others whose freedoms they criticize. Does that make sense? Third, our individual conscience is to be biblically informed and to grow in maturity, but sometimes our backgrounds affect our conscience in gray areas. Our personal histories are different, and and different things bother different believers uh, in different degrees because of our different associations. A person who grew up in the home of an alcoholic may think differently about drinking than another Christian who did not have that background. Uh, years ago, years ago, a student put a mild pill, a, a, a mild upper, on the desk of one of my faculty colleagues as a joke. And you'd have to know the context of the joke. Uh, I didn't think anything about it. But my friend, my colleague, had a history of drug abuse. And he told me later, Gary, I sat there and looked at that pill for three days before I threw it away. So while we are free, we're to be thoughtful and loving. Fourth, you and I may disagree on the wisdom of certain freedoms, but to his own master he stands or falls, which translated means if it doesn't compromise the gospel or holiness, let it go. We're to treat each other's motives with a best-case interpretation. Now, this one will... I, there's an Australian biblical scholar that I enjoy, and um, I, he's a New Testament scholar, and I, I read him from time to time. And uh, I came across this passage where he actually addressed this. One of the things I know about him is he loves craft beers. And he is also a wine connoisseur, and he loves to discuss fine wines. Yet he believes Christians who allow their children to dress up in costumes like Voldemort and celebrate the pagan festival of Halloween are crazy. And he wrote this about this passage. I thought it was very honest. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, it baffles me and horrifies me deep down I know my Christian friends are not worshiping demons, that it's just costumes and candy, but for me, it's the vibe of the whole thing. It sends my spiritual radar crazy. I know that on this topic, I'm in the minority, and it's a minor issue, so I don't judge them for it. So here, I'm a weak believer, somewhat sensitive to Halloween celebrations. Isn't that interesting? But actually, I would argue he's not a weak brother. He's made his own choice not to participate as a matter of his own conscience 
And he's made a choice not to judge those who disagree. I think he's strong, actually. One of the early church fathers who died in uh, 253 origin wrote this, eating meat and drinking wine are matters of indifference in themselves. Even wicked people may abstain from those things, and some idol worshipers, in fact, do so for reasons which are actually evil. Likewise, quite a few heretics enjoin similar practices. The only reason abstinence of this kind is good is that it may help to avoid offending a brother. A couple of stories that you might enjoy, I don't know. Uh, Betsy and I don't drink, uh, even wine. I spent much of my weekends, uh, my freshman year at Vanderbilt University, putting guys to bed drunk and lining their trash cans and putting them next to their bed, which they would indeed fill up. Uh, I, I watched a lot of how high school valedictorians flunk out. And, and to me, it was a cautionary tale that became a personal choice. And, and there's one more thing about it. I have a deep suspicion that I would like it too well. I really do. Uh, you, you don't want me near chocolate rum balls or rum raisin ice cream or brandied fruit. Uh, recently, Betsy and I were in Miami, and we were hosted by a wonderful family. Um, it was a Cuban doctor. And uh, one evening before supper, our hostess asked if we drank wine. And Betsy said no. And when we came to the dinner table, there was no wine there. We, we, honestly, we felt bad um, that they kept it off the table, but they didn't want to offend me and Betsy. Now, it wouldn't have offended us, yet they were sensitive to that possibility. However, we did drink a lot of Cuban coffee, caffeinated, a lot. Well, our Seventh-day Adventist friends abstained from alcohol, meat, and caffeine. I told my growth group about this. Uh, Southern Adventist University up in College Dill holds an annual theology lectureship. And uh, one year, I was invited to be their lecturer. Uh, they, were, they were just very gracious hosts, and I did several lectures. Uh, but when I first arrived on campus, the head of the theology department asked me if he could get me anything, to which I replied entirely without thinking, so where can I go get a cup of coffee? Which to him was probably the same thing as, before I preach, where can I get a cold beer? Okay, and, and you know, in the providence of God, I'm sure that if I'd gotten coffee, it would have spilled on my tie, which I would have then had to take off, then I wouldn't have been able to preach uh, uh, unless I put on a Puritan Halloween costume uh, and used only the King James Version. Okay, the, the entire context for all of this discussion is anchored in the statement of principle that we see in Romans 15, verse 4. Take a look at it. It's our new memory verse. In fact, if you don't mind, get your bulletin 
and open it to the right-hand page, and at the bottom, let's read our new memory verse together. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, good, thank you. Notice it doesn't say we might have love or we might have graciousness towards one another. All wonderful things, but instead that we might have hope. Why hope? Years ago, I did a study on hope with you, and I gave you a definition that is anchored in several passages in Scripture. And I'm going to repeat that definition because I think it's deeply biblical. Hope is a future certainty grounded in a past reality that results in our present mentality. Hope is a future certainty that is our eternal destiny because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We've been saved by grace in Him. Grounded in a past reality, Jesus' work on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died in our place so that we, by faith in Him, can have our sins forgiven and become children of God, adopted into his family, that results in our present mentality of confidence, contentment, and peace, including peace about those things which we may not agree on. So hope is a future certainty grounded in a past reality that results in a present mentality. doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but I believe the truth of that is just marvelous there's so many things to talk about in this verse romans 15 4 that that focuses on hope and later on the segment will end with hope but when you break verse 4 down he's really talking about four things scripture perseverance or endurance third encouragement or comfort i I like that translation a little bit better same word comfort holy spirit is our comforter and fourth, hope. So scripture, perseverance, comfort, and hope. What he means is then developed through verses 5 through 13, which we have already studied. And I just want to make a couple of comments about that. First of all, producing this patient endurance, this comfort, this hope, is clearly, clearly the work of the triunity of God. As has been pointed out, if you look in verse verse 5, You've got the work of the Father. May God who gives perseverance. In uh, verse um, 6, that uh, with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you. We have the work of the Son. In verse 3, even Christ did not please Himself. Uh, In verse 5, according to Christ Jesus. In verse 6, Uh, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ accepted us. Verse 8, for Christ became a servant to the circumcision. And then the work of the Spirit. I would say in verse 4, because he is the one who inspired the Scriptures, who breathed them into men, who, who wrote them down. But in verse 13, we end by saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. We don't bring about perseverance, encouragement, and hope. Only God 
does this. How does God do that? Through the comfort of the scriptures. Question, exactly how does God do it through the scriptures? Because the Old Testament scripture, and that's what he was talking about, mediates those two elements of our walk with God, perseverance and encouragement, in order that we may have hope. In fact, the verb have is a present tense, that we may just keep on having hope. Listen to the echoes of these same themes in Ephesians 4. Just listen. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling. You hear some of the same words here, don't you? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who's Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. Do you hear the Trinity here? And the unity despite the diversity? In Romans 4, therefore it was also credited to him, Abram, as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake, it was to whom it will be credited. That is, he's writing to former pagan Gentile Romans as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 9 through 11, for it is written in the law of Moses, and he's speaking to Corinthians. How are they interested in the Old Testament? Well, because it's the word of God. The Corinthians, it is written in the law of Moses. And then he, he cites the text, and then he says, ask the question, is he speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. And he's, he's putting himself with these former pagan Gentile Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, next chapter, verses 7 through 11, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament for these pagan Gentile Corinthians. And he says this to them. Now these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's addressing Romans, he's addressing Corinthians, he's addressing Chattanoogans, he's addressing former pagans who need the Old Testament. Never once does Paul pause and say to these Gentile churches, now, you need to understand this argument is important only for those occasional Jewish believers who may be present and is irrelevant to you Gentile believers. No, all Scripture is God-breathed out and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We learn in Scripture that both Jew and Gentile were included in God's plan of redemption from Genesis on. Both Jew and Gentile. We learn in Scripture that both Jew and Gentile, who are different races, who have different views about what freedoms they permit, are in Christ and have the same hope. So, chapter 15, verse 4. In some ways, it's almost a parenthetical principle statement, a critical pause in the argument to, to declare that the source of this hope is found in Scripture. And, and he's talking primarily about Old Testament Scripture because at this point, chronologically, when Paul wrote these words, here's what was, had already been inscripturated. You ready for it? The list, James, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, and now Romans. That's it. There was a lot more scripture that did not exist 
when Paul wrote these words, but the Holy Spirit would inspire and move that under the umbrella of Scripture that is profitable for doctrine and so forth, that produces hope. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, and that's all. But the Corinthian, Roman, Chattanooga believers were not looking at what we call the Old Testament as a story without an ending. They already knew through the apostles' teaching the fulfillment of the law had come. The Old Testament story has been completed in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has a point. And this led to the benedictory prayer in verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now notice that we are to, get per, we are to receive perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures. And in verse 5, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement wants us to be of the same mind. Verse 6, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same mind, with one accord, with one voice. Paul doesn't necessarily mean that believers are, are going to agree on every item in the gray area list. Instead, he wants those, them to be of the same mind. And I think Lewis pointed this out, that this is the same that's used in, in Philippians 4.2, where Paul says, I urge Euodius, I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind. Same term. They did not agree. But they, he, he means that they are to choose to maintain unity when they disagree. Does that make sense? To choose to maintain unity when they disagree. So we've got the exhortation in verse 7. Therefore, accept one another. You may not accept their views, but you accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God, and he explains how despite our sinfulness, despite our differences, despite our crankiness, despite, despite our orneriness, Christ became a servant. A servant is one who yields his rights to the Lord. Christ became a servant to the Jews, verse 8, and to the Gentiles, verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 9. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written... In the verb tense, it is written, is a tense that indicates completed action with ongoing results. One uh, good way of rendering this, and you, I mean, you've seen this all over, all over Scripture, it is written. You've seen it all over, right? This pluperfect tense means, um, means um, uh, completed action with enduring results. It stands written. The other way he cites Scripture is in the present tense. It is saying. It is saying. Not it said. But it says. You'll see it translated that way. And you'll see it here. Verse 9. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it stands written. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Verse 10. Again he is saying. There it is again. Different verb. But present tense. Rejoice O Gentiles. Verse 11, 
Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Verse 12. Again, Isaiah is saying, because Scripture is alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks to us. It is the source that we look at and we see the character of God and we are filled with hope. Lewis made an excellent point by reminding us when citing all these passages that uh, Paul is writing by sheer numbers to more Gentiles than to Jews. The Jews didn't grow up with the Old Testament, but it didn't matter. The Word of God has the ring of truth, and it brings the hope that we need to live in this fallen world. Haven't you had the experience of entering a worship service and, and your heart is heavy with some issue or other, and it just hurts, and you sit there, and even if the sermon doesn't have anything to do with the topic that's on your heart, there is a, a, a healing, a balm. The truth of God's word washes over your wounds with a balm that can come only from God. That's the God of hope who inhabits his word. And when you and I don't always agree on certain things theologically, uh, if if we're both standing on Scripture as the source of our authority, we're going to be okay. Okay? We're going to be okay. Because the Scriptures tell me, chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. The Scriptures tell me, chapter 14, verse 1, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment, on his opinions. Look at verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. God has accepted him. Look at chapter 15, verse 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. That's what Scripture says. When Marshal St. John asked me to conduct his funeral, it was not the pastor at Wayside Presbyterian Church uh, with whom I had a very long friendship. The reason Marshal wanted me to conduct his funeral, even though I'm not a PCA pastor, uh, was not because we agreed on the tribulation or on infant baptism. It was because we loved each other. We're brothers. Bottom line stuff. So then he gives this benediction in verse 13. Um, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul begins this section with hope in verse 4. Closes it with hope in verse 13. Our benediction today, by the way, is that verse, verse 13. God, who inspired Scripture, empowers us to activate our future hope in the present. And that's because we have placed our faith, because verse 13 says, joy and peace in believing. We have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, the good news. And Paul says that, The Spirit produces not just joy and peace, but 
all joy and peace. Not merely because we have hope, but because we abound in hope. I have been beside a lot of deathbeds. And one thing is constant among believers. They are looking forward to seeing their Lord Jesus. That is not natural. That is supernatural. The biblical meaning of hope, a future certainty grounded in a past reality that results in a present mentality. I want to talk about, about that idea, about hope, and make two extended observations as I close. Notice the word extended. First of all, because we have hope in Christ, the tragedies of life may try to push us down, but they will never have the power to keep us down. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. You might think, yeah, but Gary, you don't understand. In my life, I have no good options. There's no possible good outcome that I'm looking at here in the things that are a part of my life. My friends, Jeremiah is a case study in no good options. And he's also a case study in hope lost and hope regained. Everything that Jeremiah possessed was burned up before his eyes the city of Jerusalem. Most of the people he knew and loved were either dead or were being taken off into slavery. His own future was uncertain. Would he live or die? He didn't know. Would he be dragged off into slavery? Would he be left to fend for himself in a desolate land? Are you hearing any good options here? In Lamentations chapter 3, I'm just going to jump in the middle of a context. It's, the whole chapter is just amazing. But in verse 17, he says, My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I said, My strength has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. Hope is gone. But then begins a process of transforming his mind, mental renewal, according to the principles of the truth of the Word of God. And he says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers. My soul remembers. His mind kicks into reboot his emotions. Let me repeat that. His mind kicks in to reboot his emotions. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Jeremiah meditated on the character of the God to whom he belonged 
His hope returned. Your hope is anchored in your view of God, really. Little God, little hope. (laughs) Great God, great hope. Hope didn't change Jeremiah's circumstances. Hope changed his outlook on his circumstances. Hope changed his emotions. Hope moved Jeremiah from allowing himself to think of himself as a victim to a place where he rested in his victory being in the Lord. Is that easy? Absolutely not. Is it natural? Absolutely not. It's supernatural. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. Some of you are struggling in your employment. Some of you are struggling with illness, health concerns, uh, rebellious child. Maybe you're struggling with a difficult older parent. The question I ask myself, okay, how big is my God? Where do I find out? I go to the scriptures. Here's what Jeremiah was struggling with. The focus of hope is not on a good outcome in this life. Be nice. Sometimes that happens. But hope is not a spiritual band-aid that ignores real pain or pretends it isn't so bad. Instead, it's being loved by the God of the universe who held Jeremiah in his hand. That was enough. I said I had two extended observations. Here's the second one. Because we have hope in Christ, and this is a little bit more pedestrian, but because we have hope in Christ, What's going on in Washington doesn't matter, ultimately. Uncertain foreign policy, vicious personal attacks, lack of logic, um, lack of perspective in the media, all the things that might be on our radar or mine, none of those things are to be allowed to push my emotional buttons to determine my contentment unless I forget where my hope is. I shouldn't grant those kinds of things to have control over me. All too often, Christians place their hope in the same places where unbelievers place their hope. Family and friends, good things right there. Good things, family and friends. But other things, sometimes people place their hope in money. Sometimes people burrow into things to create places of hope in entertainment or alcohol or sex or acquisitions or serial relationships, things that don't satisfy. They burrow into those things trying to to create hope in the hopelessness. If If you have put your hope in your bank account, then when the economy goes south, you're going to be devastated. If, if your thoughts are in your portfolio, that's why Paul says to the rich Christians, listen to this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who supplies us with all good things to enjoy. I want to conclude with a word about following on this last point about hope and our emotions because hope definitely includes our emotions. But if you think of it like a train, 
the old illustration that Bill Bright used to give uh, years and years ago. Don't let your feelings be the engine that drives all the other cars. Rather, remember what Scripture says. Love the Lord with all your mind. Think on these things. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let your transformed mind and the truth of Scripture that we understand that sits before us in God's Word, that's the engine that should pull the car of your emotions. And then you will have what we saw in Lamentations 3 with Jeremiah, where his emotions, where biblical hope drove out the emotion of despair and his mind was nurtured through the truth of God's word and his emotions were then conformed to God's will. Because, because whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, I thank you for your word, for this testimony, and I ask, Lord, that we would be faithful in looking at the circumstances of our lives through the biblical lens of hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.